So I have the pleasure of introducing Caroline, my wife. She is pursuing a PhD program in theology right now. And she's just a fount of wisdom, I know. So here she is. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. Light is very bright. Thanks for coming in person in this very, very cold day and everyone um, who's tuning in for our live uh, stream, welcome. Um, as Charles says, my name is Caroline. I used to be part of the uh, pastoral staff here. I sometimes preach now. Um, so today, since it's still January, I'm allowed to talk about New Year's resolutions and checking on you guys. No, just kidding. Um, it's the beginning of the year when we're inclined to pause and reflect on life, our past choices, where we are now, our trajectories, hopes, and dreams. And some of us made um, New Year's resolutions and hope that we have the discipline and willpower to follow through. Because we all want a good life. We all want a life worth living, a life that matters, a life with significance. And these resolutions we make are our attempts to move a step closer to that life that we want. But what does it mean to have significance in life? What really is true significance? What does it look like? We're currently in the sermon series called Gospel Reimagined. Uh, in some ways, the whole series is really about answering this question. What truly matters in life? What does Jesus' good news have to say about this? And the, the series is building on the insight that Charles, lead pastor Charles, shared a few weeks ago at Christmas service. Um, when the New Testament Gospels quote prophet Isaiah to call people to prepare the way of the Lord. It's, um, he puts it in the mouth of John the Baptist. Um, contrary to common understanding, this was not about, not primarily about straightening, straightening up our acts and doing the right thing. He very artfully showed us this beautiful illustration that we might think that preparing the uh, way for the Lord is like this and you want to straightening out the crooked you know uh, ways doing the right thing but it's really about lowering the highs and raising up the lows turned sideways it was challenging both inner both our inner mentality and external structures of the world founded on hierarchy and discrimination, sorting and classifying people based on society's assessment of their values. But the, um, as was expressed by the prophet Isaiah's words, prepare the way of the Lord, make ready a highway for our God, 
Every value must be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Because we, we want to remember that Jesus was speaking during the Roman occupation of Judah. The gospel writers were saying that despite what the world says, despite the logic of the empire, God's reality is based on love and connection. But the challenge in following this vision for us is that we are so used to seeing the world with mountains and valleys. Through hierarchies and class systems, wins and losses, privilege and marginalization, conquering and exploitation. We're so trained to forever look up to the mountain and aspire to be there and look down to the valleys and strive not to lose any ground. To always look for significance on the mountaintops and hills. And it's our whole society is trained to see reality this way. And it continues to train us this way. So much so that even when we want to pursue love and connection, we automatically think that the way to do that is to stand on the mountaintop and lead, which is how we understand leadership. Our society's notion of an influencer is um, someone with a lot of followers on social media. To be an influencer means to have the marketing power to promote products. How thoroughly capitalist notion of significance in life. As a result, I think we often fail to recognize true significance of those who live with liberating humility and make real differences in the world. So to truly understand, embrace, and live the good news, we must retrain our visions to see reality differently. So today, I want to share with you a story about often overlooked characters who embody a life of true significance and challenge our perspective on what it means. This story comes from um, the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. Have you heard of Moses? He's a pretty well-known guy, a singularly important figure in both Judaism and Christianity. And the first two chapters of Exodus describe the background story of Moses' birth and life before God called him to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. It is his origin story, so to speak. What is perhaps not as well known as Moses and not discussed as often is that his origin story is really a women's story. In the span of the first two chapters of um, the book of Exodus, there are 12 women characters who play crucial roles in the survival of their people, as well as Moses' life and leadership. Shall we take a look? 
So to give you some background, at the end of the book of Genesis, which comes right before Exodus, Jacob and 70 members of his household came to Egypt to escape the widespread famine in the region. Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, had become a high official in Egypt, so they followed him and Joseph provided for them. They stayed, the people of um, Jacob's family stayed even after the famine, uh, famine was over for generations. They multiplied and prospered there. And that's where our story today picks up. It's from Exodus uh, 1.8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than me. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelite and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. So without any provocation, provocation from the Israelites, the Pharaoh says to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly, shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So this is his worldview, right? When he says shrewdly here, let's, let us be shrewd, uh, be, uh, let us deal with them shrewdly. The text uses, uh, it actually uses the same Hebrew word that means wisely. So for the, this Pharaoh and his reign, dominance and exploitation was the wisdom. His worldview is entirely about us versus them and power over others. When the harsh forced labor and its misery failed to suppress Israelites' population, vitality, and life force, he then turns to infanticide and orders all the newborn baby boys to be killed. So rising up to me, this deadly threat to their community is a cast of women. They are the two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, who defy the Pharaoh's order to kill all newborn males at birth when they, were, when they assisted Hebrew women in delivering babies. They lied and tricked um, the Pharaoh. Then there are Moses' mother and sister. Uh, we later find out later in the book that their names are Jochbet and Miriam. Um, 
they did not throw newborn Moses into the Nile as was um, commanded by the Pharaoh, but put him in a basket on the Nile. And the Egyptian princess who found the basket and adopted Moses as her own son. And finally, there are seven um, daughters of the Median priest. Um, when Moses fled Egypt after killing a man, the seven um, daughters, his family, took him in, nurtured him, and uh, restored him. One of the seven sisters is Zipporah, who becomes Moses' wife, and later saves Moses, um, his life, on the way back, from, back to Egypt. Twelve women. And though all their stories are very rich and worth further discussion, um, for the sake of time today, we'll focus on the story of Moses' birth and adoption in Exodus 2, 1 to 10. Uh, let me read it for us. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could, not, she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and, and, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's... Sorry. Child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman, woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So this story is probably familiar, familiar to many of you. It is often told to emphasize how special Moses was, how he was chosen by God. I mean, what is the chance of a baby floating on the Nile surviving in a basket and becoming a prince of Egypt? He's the one with true significance, right? But for today, the trick is to not focus on Moses, but to pay attention to the other nameless characters of this story. Let's retrain our vision and perspective. So forget about Moses on the mountaintop for a little while and see what is truly happening on the ground. 
and I propose that a different interpretation emerges. So Levi was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So a Levite man and a Levite woman got married and had a baby boy. But the Pharaoh's edict had, um, had been already issued. All Hebrew newborn male babies must be thrown into the Nile. But the mother, uh, the, the text says, when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. The original Hebrew simply says, when she saw that he was tov. And tov means good, pleasing, or delightful, sweet, any of these things. Now, this verse is often understood to mean that Moses was a special baby, and her mother, some, his mother somehow recognized that. But I think it can simply mean that she found him beautiful. To her, he was Tov, which I would say is a common response among mothers who've just had a baby. I mean, when most people see a newborn baby, even if it's not their own, they would be amazed at their preciousness. That's a natural response. So the mother loved the baby at first sight and decided to preserve his life, risking her own safety. And I imagine she was not the only Hebrew mother who attempted that, except that our story today is about this particular family. The baby grows bigger and louder, I imagine, and it becomes impossible to hide him safely in the house. So what did she do? She put him in a basket and sent it away on the river and hoped for the best. And God orchestrated it all and saved Moses because he was special and chosen by God. Well, not quite. Let's read closely and use our imagination here. The mother carefully constructed a basket and waterproofed it. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. Then she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. The prose is very terse. Doesn't really give us a lot of information. What she was thinking, how she was feeling, just one line. Very typical of, um, of biblical narratives. But this loving mother must have thought hard and long how to save the baby, right? She must have discussed it, all, all of this, with her daughter, who was living with her, and strategized and carefully chosen where and when to leave the basket to coincide with the Pharaoh's daughter's bathing routines. The story says the princess's attendants, she was, she was bathing, and princess's attendants walked along the river while she took bath. 
probably to ensure her safety and privacy. I mean, she was a princess, Pharaoh's daughter. And this was a big operation. And I imagine the bathing spot must have been chosen carefully beforehand. Like, you know, the security guards for the president's daughter or something, you know. And it is very possible that the baby's mother and sister knew of the princess's routine. Which explains why the sister was there watching the basket. The English translation says his mother stood at a di- um, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him, as if out of idle curiosity of a child. But actually, the Hebrew word here that's translated as stood has the nuance of taking one's stand or stationing oneself. So the sister was in position for her assignment. She had a mission, which was all part of their plan. They seemed to have targeted the princess for some reason, and their reason proved sound, because the princess was clearly fully aware of the political atmosphere of the time, and her father's deadly edict because she says, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. She was aware of what was going on. She knew that her father ordered the babies killed, and perhaps she quietly disagreed with them. Because when she opened the basket and saw the child crying, she decides to go directly against his command and spare this baby, to take responsibility for his life. So when the baby sister pops up and asks if she should find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for her, it is entirely possible that the princess knew exactly what was going on. She knew that this encounter was pre-planned and that the woman she hired to nurse the baby was actually the baby's mother. Nevertheless, she tells the girl, go, and becomes a full participant in this rescue plan to preserve a life. They weren't preserving Moses because he was special. They were preserving him because he was a life. They were preserving a life. The three women continued, must have continued their partnership until the boy was older. They must have had to communicate and collaborate throughout the, t- throughout the time to pay the mother the wages that she promised to ensure protection for the boy and the family from her own people. And when the boy was older, the princess took him in and became his adoptive mother. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. And perhaps this was possible because she lived in the harem 
with other royal women away from men in the palace. Probably possible only because she was the daughter of the pharaoh and not a son, not a potential heir to the throne. See, these women were marginalized in their society, especially the Hebrew women, but in some ways, in some area of their life, also the Egyptian princess. The Hebrew women were doubly oppressed by the supremacist and totalitarian rule of the pharaoh and the sexist and misogynistic patriarchal culture of their own homes. As you can see, they occupied only the spaces and the roles that would be allowed, that were allowed for women in a patriarchal culture as mothers, sisters, midwives, wives, in their homes, birthing rooms, secluded bathing spots, or the harem. These were women's spaces. But despite their lack of power in society, they were successful and effective resistant fighters, undermining and subverting the Pharaoh's agenda and his wisdom of death, um, domination, and exploitation to preserve, nurture, and build their community. There were savvy strategists operating with an entirely different kind of wisdom, the wisdom of life, collaboration, and inclusion. They preserved and nurtured life. That was their choice at every turn. Collaborated with other women, just as the mother and the sister strategized and schemed together. They included the different others as partners like the Egyptian princess who was separated from them by class and race. To bless all of this, to bless their community, to love their community. They may not have been charismatic rock star leaders, though there is a case to be made that uh, the sister Miriam grows up to be one. Nonetheless, they were true influencers who lived a life of significance. It is also important to note that depending on our perspectives, as we have just seen, the same story can have different meanings. We see different things depending on what kind of wisdom we value. We can read the story as a story about Moses' specialness, his chosenness and singular leadership, and forever look to the mountaintop to find leaders, life of significance. Or we can take our eyes off the mountaintop to see a different story, different reality, a reality more aligned with God's unconditional love. With a different perspective, our lives too 
will take on different interpretations. So my hope for us this year is to retrain our perception of worth and significance, our worldview, so we can also recognize power and significance in ourselves, in the ordinary people around us. So we too can live by the wisdom of life, collaboration, and inclusion, like these wise women in Exodus, Book of Exodus. So three um, practical suggestions for today, briefly. The first is to notice and bless life. Notice life, love, beauty, and joy around you, and bless it. Bless it in yourself. Don't get so hung up on morality, right and wrong, but see value and celebrate life in us life in others, the life we impart in others. My second suggestion is be a collaborator of different perspectives. Don't try to be a superstar at work, at home, on the field, in love, in friendship, in parenting, in companionship. Let's be the people who help others shine. Value and include uh, value and include diverse different others in your collaboration. Their opinions, their feelings, their contributions, take note of them. And look for synergy that comes when different perspectives come together. And the third is to live deeply into the now. See, dreams and hopes are important, and setting goals can be very helpful, and I encourage all of us to do it. But we reach our dreams by living the present well, not by ignoring it while chasing after something better on the mountaintop. So let's let our presence matter in our life and in others' lives this year. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for all who are gathered here and at home for your blessing of life, connection, and belonging. I pray that we see the Spirit's movement and follow her. I pray that we bless life whenever and wherever we witness it. I pray that we will not be afraid when the fullness of life seems out of control or chaotic, but to trust your love and wisdom and continue to say yes. We say yes in your name. Amen.